Today, we're going to talk about David's chickens coming home to roost. You know, over the course of most of our series on David this fall, we've looked primarily at David's, uh, the, the better episodes in David's story. And in the last couple of weeks, Joe did talk about the incident with Bathsheba and Nathan's conviction of him. But what we're going to see today is, in a sense, all of, all of David's debts starting to get called in. The thing is, David was a man of violence. David was a man of misplaced passions. He was a man of indulgence, fundamentally a selfish man. And all of these things bring him to a situation where when his son Absalom rebels against him, things really start to get ugly. So let's start off with one of these men of violence, one of these mighty men that worked with David. By the way, Joe, I, I really, it's been great listening to Joe's uh, sermons, uh, but uh, David had mighty men, not merry men. Robin Hood had the merry men. David had his mighty men. Uh, and so uh, the chief of David's mighty men, the head general, was Joab. And Joab, as you'll remember, when David sleeps with Bathsheba, it's Joab that David tells to pull back and make sure that Bathsheba's husband Uriah is struck down in battle. He directs his general, his field marshal, he directs him to have one of his leading officers left exposed. And in the result of this episode, after David has fasted, and his first child with Bathsheba dies, he then comforted her, went to her, lay with her, and she gave birth to a son named Solomon. Meanwhile, Joab is fighting against Rabbah of the Ammonites. He's on the other side of the Dead Sea. You remember at the beginning of the story of David and Bathsheba, the author of 2 Samuel says that in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. But he didn't go. Kings go out to war in the spring, but David wasn't acting like a king. He let his army go off and do that for him. And so at this point, Joab, having been doing all of this fighting, says, you know, I just captured Rabbah, captured the royal citadel of Ammon. I took its water supply. So, David, my king, please muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I will take the city, and it will be named after me. And because of the geographical situation of this city, my King David, this is a place I will be able to hold and establish my own power center if you're not going to get on board with the things you're supposed to be doing as king, i.e. mustering armies and defeating your enemies. So David did. Joab has forced David's hand. David 
did muster the whole army, went to Rabbah, attacked it, captured it, took the crown from their king's head, the thing weighed 75 pounds or so of gold set with precious stones, put it on his head, took a lot of plunder out of the city and enslaved the people who were there, put them to labor with saws, iron picks, axes, and brick making. And he did all this to all the Ammonite towns and then went back to Jerusalem. So David finally does what a king is supposed to do, but it takes some arm twisting to get him out to do it. So our story of Absalom really starts in chapter 13 of 2 Samuel, where we read that in the course of time, Amnon, the the son of David, fell in love with Tamar. Amnon was David's first son. Tamar was the sister of Absalom, David's third son. And Amnon just became obsessed with her. He was frustrated to the point of illness on account of her. Because she was a virgin, it seemed like he would not be able to do anything with her. Well, so he works up a plan with the help of this crafty Yonadab. And he ends up getting her alone. And he rapes her. And the result of this is that her brother Absalom comes to her and says, Be quiet now, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. Easy for him to say. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. Now when King David heard all this, he was furious. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. So what we read here is that David is furious and Absalom is furious. Tamar is desolate. But Absalom is planning. Absalom knows the old Sicilian proverb that revenge is a dish best served cold. And so he is going to take some action. But we don't read of David taking any action at all here. We don't read of David trying to secure justice for his daughter. We don't hear of David confronting his firstborn son. We just read that he's furious. His passions are unfruitful. So two years later, fast forward to the point where Absalom's sheep shears are at Baal Hazor near the border of Ephraim. You know where that is. And Absalom invites all the king's sons to come there. When the sheep shearers come, that's time for a party. You're harvesting all this wool, and you just might actually accidentally nick some sheep's necks as well and have a nice time. And so he invites the king and all of his sons to join him. And the king says, no, nah, that's okay. You know, so many of us it would be a burden to you, but please uh, take, take my blessing. And then Absalom says, well, if you're not going to come, at least let my brother Amnon come with us. I mean, he's the crown prince, right? He's the, the firstborn. I think it's appropriate that, uh, that I, I receive some honor here. The king said, well, why do you want Amnon to come? But Absalom urged him, so he sent him. Sent with him Amnon and the rest of the king's son. So Absalom ordered his men, listen, 
When Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike him down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. I've given you the order. Be strong and brave. And so, Absalom's men did to Amnon what he ordered. And all the king's other sons, who had not been murdered by Absalom's men, got up, hopped on their mules, and fled. This is one of the places, I think, where I think the the nature of the biblical text kind of attests to the fact that it's telling a story about something that really happened. Because if you were writing this story, and you wanted to tell the story of all these king's sons, all these princes fleeing, what would you have them right away on? Like horses, stallions, right? This is almost comical. You can imagine them hopping up on these mules and sort of you know, running away. And so while they're on their way, David hears news. Absalom's killed all your sons, and then he finds out, no, actually, he didn't kill all your sons. He just killed the one, just Amnon. And meanwhile, Absalom gets out of Dodge, runs off way up north to the east of the Sea of Galilee, where his family's from, his mother's family. And what this all yields is a consequence that Absalom is now out of town. King David is mourning for his son Absalom every day. He's mourning for his son Amnon who's been killed. He's mourning for his son Absalom who's gone. It says that the spirit of the king longed to go to Absalom for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. Well, as you might imagine, this doesn't go over so well with the army. Joab, the general, starts to get concerned. He works out a little plot. Again, kind of forces David's hand. And David ends up inviting Absalom to come back from exile, come back to Jerusalem. So in Absalom's return, we have first a scene of restoration where he goes to his own house. He's not allowed to go to David. But he goes to his own house. He's somebody who is beautiful in appearance. He has this great head of hair. has three sons and a daughter. Names his daughter Tamar after his sister. And she became a beautiful woman. And we find not only that, that Absalom is brought back, but that there is a reconciliation with his father. He, after two years, tries to get in to see his dad. He tells Joab, the general, look, I, I want to see David. And Joab says, no. And he says, Joab, I really want to see my father. Joab says, no. And Absalom notices that his property is right next door to Joab's, and Joab's got a field of barley. So he lights it on fire. That gets Joab's attention. Finally, he gets to see him. So Joab went to the king, told him, the king summoned Absalom. Absalom came and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Great now, right? Scene of reconciliation. Absalom not only restored from exile, but clearly he is in the king's graces. Except... Absalom had other things in mind because we read on in chapter 15 that in the course of time, Absalom 
got himself a chariot and some horses, and he got 50 men to run ahead of him. And he would get up early, and he'd stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anybody came with a complaint to be placed before King David for a decision, Absalom would call out to him and say, hey, where are you from? And he, the person would answer, well, your servant's from one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom would say to him, hey, look, your claims are valid and, and proper. It's a, it sure is a shame there's no representative of the king to hear you. You know, if I were the representative of the king, I'd be really happy to do it and I'd grant your claim, but it's just kind of too bad that nobody's getting justice. And whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him, which is the kind of thing that a king does to his subjects. So after four years of this, Absalom goes to David. And he says, let me go to Hebron, south of Jerusalem, and fulfill a vow I made to Yahweh. Because when I was out there in exile all the way up, east of Galilee in modern-day Syria. I, I vowed that if Yahweh brings me back to Jerusalem, I will worship him in Hebron. And so the king says, fine, go ahead. But Absalom had sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied him. They had been invited as guests. They went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. But while Absalom was offering sacrifices, he sent for David's conciliary, Ahithophel, to come and conspire with him. And Absalom's following kept increasing. So after his restoration and reconciliation, now Absalom enters into active rebellion. David gets word of this, realizes he has to escape takes his guys, gets out of Jerusalem. And once again, we have David out hiding in the wilderness from a relative who wants to kill him. David's like, I've seen this movie before. I didn't really want the sequel. Meanwhile, Absalom comes into Jerusalem where David has left behind, even though he took his, his whole entourage, he left behind ten concubines to take care of the place. Well, what does Absalom do? Sets up a tent up on the roof of the house, of the palace. And in the sight of all of Jerusalem, lay with his father's concubine. So he's making a point. But after his restoration, reconciliation, and rebellion, Absalom gets his reckoning. Fast forward to chapter 18. And we find that Absalom's effort is frustrated militarily. David is, after all, a great military strategist, and he's got the best of the best on his side. And so even though he wants to go out and march with his guys at their command, he stays safely inside the city. They all march out. But before they leave, the king commanded Joab and the other generals. He says, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom 
to each of the commanders. Imagine this. You're about to march out, place your own life in danger in order to defend your king against his son who is trying to usurp his throne, who's in active, open rebellion. And what you hear from your king right before you march off is, be gentle to him for my sake. Sure enough, they went into battle. Absalom, also riding his mule, as the mule goes under the thick branches of a large oak tree, Absalom's head gets caught, and he's left there hanging in midair. Joab comes along, puts three javelins in him, then has ten of his armor bearers come along and make sure the job was finished. And then what happens? What do you think David's response to this is? While David's sitting between the inner and outer gates, this watchman goes up to the roof of the gateway by the wall. He looks out, sees a man running alone. Watchman called out to the king and reported it. King says, well, if he's alone, he must have good news. The man comes closer and closer, and then the man saw another man running, and he called to the gatekeeper. Another guy's running here alone. Oh, he must be bringing good news too. The first guy comes and says to the king, all is well. Praise be to Yahweh your God. He's delivered up the men who lift up their hands against my lord the king. And what's the first thing David says when he gets this good news, that this rebellion has been put down, that his army has fought on his behalf to protect him? What about Absalom? Is he okay? And this messenger, Ahimaaz, who has a strong sense of self-preservation, says, I, I don't know, I, you know, when I left there was some stuff going on, but, um, you know, I don't know what's going on. Knowing, of course, that the other guy, whom he outran, uh, is coming with the bad news. So when the second messenger, the slower Cushite, arrives, the king asks him, is the young man Absalom safe? He replies, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went to the room over the gateway and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, if only I had died instead of you, Absalom, my son, my son. And Joab was told the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And the whole army now is coming into Jerusalem, not as victorious conquerors. It's not a big party when they come back into the city. I mean, that's usually what happens. You win a big battle, you come back to the city, everybody's happy to see you, everybody has a good time. But instead, the day has turned to one of mourning. The writer tells us they sneaked into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face. He cried aloud, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, my son Absalom. And Joab has had enough. He goes to David's house. He says, David, today you have humiliated all of your men who just saved your life 
the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and concubines. David, you love those who hate you, and you hate those who love you. You made it clear today that your officers and their men mean nothing to you. What I'm seeing here is that you would rather Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. So you got to go out right now and encourage your men. And I swear by Yahweh, if you don't go out, your entire army is going to desert you before the day is over. And that will be worse for you than all of the calamities that have come upon you from your youth until now. So again, David, with his hand forced by Joab, gets up and takes his seat in the gateway. We're going to talk next week about the ways in which David was a crooked stick with whom God drew straight lines. We're going to talk about the ways in which David was somebody who loved God passionately. Somebody who left for us a a record of that love in his many psalms. Somebody who knew what it was to know God's forgiveness, to worship him with gratitude. But we can't get there, I think, until we realize just how crooked this stick was. And here, as his story is coming to its last chapters, what we see is David reaping the fruit of being a man of violence, being a man of misplaced passions, a man who unwisely indulges his passions, who's fundamentally selfish, places himself in a position where everybody who feels that they would deserve his loyalty, is disappointed. And as I mentioned a couple months ago, as we got underway with this story, one of the reasons, I think, that God shows us these, gives us these stories of the crooked sticks with which he draws straight lines is to give us a backdrop against which we see the good example of our Lord Jesus Christ. David was a man of violence, but Jesus was the Prince of Peace. David was a man of misplaced passions, but Jesus was a man whose will was conformed with and aligned to the will of his Father. And even when he felt those intention, as he did at Gethsemane, his prayer was, not, your, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And whereas David was a man of indulgence, who was fundamentally selfish, Jesus gave himself rather than gratifying himself. As I read these stories, I keep coming back to what Paul said in Philippians 2, quoting that early hymn of the church, that Jesus, even though he was in very nature God, didn't consider that equality with God something to clutch onto, something to take advantage of, but rather he emptied himself, took on the form of a slave. He was found in human likeness, and he became obedient to death, even to the most humiliating and painful death imaginable 
the result of which, the result of that self-giving being that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the name of David, we nod and say, yeah, he was a complex figure. But at the name of Jesus, we bow, we kneel, we confess his lordship. Will you pray with me? Lord, in, in keeping with Steve's prayer, I want to join with that and pray that our leaders would follow more the example of our Lord Jesus than that of David. That they would be people of peace rather than violence. That their wills would conform to yours rather than having their passions misplaced. That, that they would be generous and self-giving rather than taking advantage and indulging their own desires. I pray that we also would continually be conformed more and more to the image of your Son, whom you love, in whom we have redemption, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.